Money FM 89.3, best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. You're listening to Primetime on Money FM 89.3. I'm Rachel Kelly. Now, one week ago today, news broke that Russia had invaded Ukraine. Russian forces have now taken the first major Ukrainian city, the strategic port of Kherson. And we've had news that Kyiv has come under more heavy shelling. Paratroopers have landed in Kharkiv. And we've had reports of the fatalities from the current conflict. Russia has given its first official account of its casualties. 498 soldiers killed and 1,500 injured. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, the United Nations says over 227 civilians have been killed in the first five days of the invasion. To get us up to speed on developments there, we're joined on the line now by Dr. Samir Puri, who is a senior fellow in urban security and hybrid warfare at the International Institute of Strategic Studies. Dr. Samir, thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you for having me back. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. So let's start off. What is the current situation? Where are we now one week on day eight? Okay, so the situation is very different to the first few days of the war. The first few days, there was, I think, a lot of optimism that Ukraine might Mm. be able to hold cities and that Russia's advance might uh, sort of trip over its own shoelaces. Uh, But now we have the first city of Ukraine falling to the Russian invasion called Kherson, uh, which is not far from Crimea in the south. We have bitter, bitter fighting, awful fighting in cities like Mariupol, also on the uh, on the south coast, Kharkiv, and of course the capital Kiev. So it really feels like Russia's war effort has entered a, a new gear. And just one other observation on this: mm-hmm. the Russian Defense Ministry has issued its first public statement over its casualties. Nearly 500 of its soldiers have been killed, so it admits, and over 1,500 injured. So you're starting to get a sense of what that is costing Russia, and of course the, the impact, uh, humanitarian impacts on Ukraine. Over a million Ukrainians have left the country and, you know, hundreds and perhaps even more have have been killed and injured inside of the country. That's right. And you mentioned that over a million people are estimated to have left the country. There's also news that ICC is investigating war crimes in Ukraine as well. What do we know about that? It's very early days and it's just Mm. a statement by the ICC that they're starting to gather evidence over war crimes. And I mean, it's a really strong statement, but really one wonders, unless the Putin regime, Putin government falls from power in Russia over the course of this invasion going horribly wrong, it's very hard to see how that would actually then be realized. Unless, of course, someone like Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, is deemed Mm. complicit and banned from traveling. This is all future yet to be written, but certainly the ICC has has made a strong statement about gathering evidence around potential war crimes being committed. And another the news out today, the UN General Assembly in a historic move overwhelmingly voted to reprimand Russia for invading Ukraine and demanded that Moscow stop fighting and withdraw its military forces, an action that aims to, I guess, you know, diplomatically isolate Russia, uh, the world body. How significant is this? I mean, the resolution, it was supported by 141 of the Assembly's 193 members. Yeah, it's hugely significant. And every Mm. piece of pressure and condemnation, especially on a platform as large as the UN, it it all counts. In practical terms, however, it's important to remember that although Russia is is becoming increasingly isolated, it is not isolated in its relationship with China. India as well has walked a very fine line, a somewhat ambiguous line in terms of avoiding full condemnation. So these are very, very powerful countries, China in particular uh, and India, of course, 
And they, they each have their own trading links with Russia, India in particular, in the defense industry. So I think it's, it's too quick to jump to conclusions that Russia is fully isolated. This is the final observation on this. I think it's astonishing, isn't it, to think that for Putin, this sort of isolation, was it unprecedented? Did he expect it? Or did he actually price it in and consider it a price worth paying to his, for his dreams of a, an aggrandized Russia and a, a sort of rebuilding of some degree of a Russian empire in Europe. Maybe he thinks it's a price worth paying. That's right. And you mentioned India, China, and a few others actually abstained from the UN General Assembly vote that we were talking about earlier. What are the key considerations or strategic considerations that perhaps we should be aware of there? It's hard, isn't it? Because mm. you, you'd, you'd hope countries take a moral standpoint simply on the loss of life and the suffering. But you know, clearly the power politics of, of you know, the modern day countries make national interest calculations. And I suppose there are a couple of considerations, one of which is, you know, for some countries, Ukraine is very, very far away. And uh, again, for the Chinese government, they have no, they have little, you know, they have economic relations with Ukraine. They do have quite a lot of trade, but China has a strong economic footprint in Belarus, which is firmly under Russia's uh, uh, influence. And one would assume if Russia is able to end this war relatively quickly, however it ends, perhaps China might even be involved in, in the reconstruction of Ukraine. I mean, I'm speculating here, but I mm-hmm. think it's educated conjecture, given that China already has significant economic interests in Belarus. And I think the final observation here is that we know that China and, and Russia came to a very deep arrangement, uh, a relationship of mutual understanding. There was a, a document that the two governments released shortly after President Putin met President Xi Jinping, the Beijing Winter Olympics, just a, it seemed like a, a long time ago, but it's only a, you know, barely a month or two ago. And that has, I think, given the Russians a lot of confidence that they won't necessarily want Chinese support. They just need China to turn a blind eye. And if China turns a blind eye to what's happening and Russia can stabilize the military situation, perhaps in around a month or so of fighting, then actually it's entirely possible that uh, Russia could come out of this horrible war having achieved some of its own goals. And that said, I mean, we've also seen reports that China may offer or China may play a role in brokering a peace deal. That's really astonishing, isn't it? You know, if, if you were sitting here 10 years ago and you, you heard about something like this, you'd mm-hmm. think, what sort of world is this? The world is so different now, isn't it? You know, whereas in the past, it was the USA that was the broker of, of you know, war and peace on the world stage. Now we're seeing a very different world in which different countries are, are the ones that are in the position to, to play this kind of role. Yes, China, with its deep relationship with Russia, President Xi, with his, his personal relationship with President Putin, could play a role, theoretically, in, in months to come, presiding over some kind of settlement. Or, if that was to happen, I can well imagine, this is all hypothetical, of course, the Western world would condemn it routinely. But at the same time, you know, Russia would have enlisted the second largest economy in the world to pass judgment and to pass some, some kind of final statement over whatever situation is in Ukraine. That could be something we see. And if we do see that, this would be a real precedent, a real marker for how geopolitics has moved away perhaps from the Western world to other parts of the world and certainly to to China having such a large role potentially but it's all potential we don't know it's just you know it's just it's just sort of prediction it's not something that's happening right now what we do know though is a second round of peace talks on the cards where is that taking place what's happening there 
Yeah, so there was the first round, mm-hmm. which was, uh, you know, Belarus was the sort of the suggested meeting point, and That's Ukraine right. was, was not confident in that happening. Uh, I, I'd need to check exactly what the location of this second round is, but I think the significance of this is that Russia is really rather good at doing something that's, that's, that, that's very relevant to this situation, and that's fighting and talking at the same time. It's true that the USA has said, well, that's not real diplomacy, but Russia has practiced this in Syria, very different environment where Mm -hmm. it maintained diplomatic channels with countries like Iran, with countries like Turkey, and it carried on this negotiation process as uh, as it intervened to back the Syrian regime. Uh, And eventually it moved the diplomacy in a way that represented what was changing on the battlefield. So there was some kind of final settlement where they divided Syria up between themselves into spheres of influence. Now, that's only relevant here because I'm pretty sure the Russian diplomats uh, who want to do this will be seeing how the battlefield changes. They'll sit down with their Ukrainian interlocutors and they'll know that Ukraine is potentially using control of cities. They'll know that Ukraine's paying a, a price and they'll ask for terms effectively of surrender. Now, if Ukraine is very stubborn, and who can blame them? Their country has been invaded out of almost mm. out of nowhere. They are suffering, you know, some of the mo- the worst humanitarian uh, punishment that you could ever, it, not even in your wildest dreams, could you imagine? You know, civilian cities being bombed in this, this horrific way. That is, of course, going to breed stubbornness and anger, and Ukrainian negotiators will reflect the will of their own people of not wanting to give in to such bullying behaviour. But then there also comes a point, there comes exhaustion in conflict, there comes uh, the point at which the military situation may slip beyond Ukraine's ability to, to, to control or to have confidence in. And again, just one final observation on this, if I may. Something we haven't seen yet on the battlefield is fierce fighting, really fierce fighting along the Donbass front line. That's the, where the war was bubbling away for eight years. We don't know how much of Ukraine's military is parked in the east of Ukraine, mm-hmm. but it could be cut off. It could find itself in full, full combat. If it is cut off, that would be a big blow if Russia is able to take more territory along the Dnieper River, which runs sort of north to south, uh, sort of two-thirds across Ukraine. The situation could shift badly against Ukraine's favour, but then again, it could also shift badly against Russia. Russia has momentum now, and war is a very unpredictable thing. We just have to wait and see how the battlefield situation plays out and how that is reflected in the diplomatic behavior of, well, I say diplomatic, I mean the negotiating behavior of Russia uh, when they speak to the Ukrainian, their Ukrainian opposite number in these peace talks. Well, Dr. Samir, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us again today and for sharing your analysis of the current situation in Ukraine. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Samir Puri, Senior Fellow in Urban Security and Hybrid Warfare International Institute for Strategic Studies. You're listening to Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.